nurse at the front line of the COVID crisis. I have witnessed innumerable deaths in my career, but I've never watched this many relatively young, otherwise healthy people become this sick, this quickly, and die alone. Welcome to the Nurse Tutor Podcast. It's from the editor of Nursing Made Incredibly Easy. Hope to give you some tips and time savers and useful and understandable information that you can use in your practice. As of today, the CDC reports 12 million cases and 257,000 deaths from COVID-19. Every day we learn a little bit more about COVID-19, but still we really don't know a whole lot about COVID-19 and how it affects different populations. Let's talk about the virus itself and how it attacks the body. We found that COVID-19 is attacking many different systems in the body, not just the lungs, although that's where a lot of the symptoms come from, is from the respiratory complications of COVID-19. Our patients end up on ventilators, they end up needing oxygen for long periods of time, they have long-term cough and other types of respiratory symptoms, even if they have a mild case of the disease. As the disease gets to be more severe, then we need to look at using a high-flow nasal cannula or using intubation, and mechanical ventilation in those patients. However, the virus also attacks other parts of the body as well. The neuromuscular system, cognitive system, even some psychiatric long-term complications are resulting from COVID-19. Interestingly, there's also a perception of inadequate care for our patients who have COVID-19. And this arises from a number of different pieces. First of all, the increased acuity. So we have more sick patients in the hospital that are needing higher levels of care, and that obviously is going to make it more difficult to be able to provide that high level of care. There's decreased staff availability because we have more patients and the acuity is higher, and because people are getting sick. And then the relationship and communication with patients is decreased. So that's one of the ways that we oftentimes communicate how we care to patients is through our relationship that we build with the patient and with our communication. And that includes the family too. So not just the patient, but the patient's family. In the situation of COVID-19 though, we're running into a lot of situations where we can't have that relationship or the communication the way that we have in the past as a result of all the isolation techniques that we're using. This ends up having some negative effects on our end-of-life discussions, and we have more and more patients who are ending up dying alone, which really uh, also lends to that perception of maybe inadequate care. So what we want to do is to be able to rapidly detect problems in their early stages in our patients who have COVID-19. Keeping in mind that one of the first places it's going to attack is the lung. It's a aerosol type of uh, virus, and so the patient inhales it, it goes down to the lung, and it starts to have its effect right away. This virus is going to attack the lung tissue, and in fact, it's going to cause some direct alveolar damage. So damage the alveolus itself, that is going to cause an inflammatory response. 
So the inflammation starts in the lung, and we start getting some bronchoconstriction and mucus production. This leads to a patient developing a decrease in compliance in the lung. Compliance is the elasticity of the lung, how well the lung is allowed to move back and forth and how elastic it is. And when we have decreased elasticity of the lung, then we're going to have a hard time moving air in and out. And of course, those alveoli are being destroyed. They're being damaged. So they're not going to work as well either. We have hemorrhage occurring and fibrosis as a final result. So as this inflammation is occurring in the lung, it's causing damage. Now think about having inflammation somewhere else in your body. You get a cut on your hand, you're going to have some inflammation there, you get redness, swelling, and eventually there's going to be scar tissue that forms, and the scar tissue is fibrotic tissue. Well, that fibrotic tissue in the alveolus is going to interfere with how well we're able to have gas exchange. So there can even be long-term problems with gas exchange as a result of having that fibrotic tissue that is starting to build. Uh, two things happen here as well. The virus itself starts to get into the bloodstream because the lungs are very vascular, and so it has the ability to be able to just kind of move into the bloodstream there and circulate throughout the body. And secondly, this overwhelming out-of-control inflammatory response that's occurring in the lung is going to start to travel outside of the lung as well. So there's too much inflammation in the lung. We don't need it all. Some of that, those inflammatory mediators and some of those mechanisms of inflammation are starting to move into the bloodstream and go to other parts of the body. And that's where we start to have some problems with other organ systems. Now, we, it's difficult at this point to be able to pinpoint how much of this is caused by systemic inflammatory response and how much of this is caused by direct damage caused by the virus. But we think there may be both. So just kind of keep that in mind when we talk about these other organ systems. The heart. So there seems to be some direct damage to myocardial tissue from the virus. Myocyte death. So the muscle itself is dying. There also is some damage to the inside of the blood vessels. And we see some vasculitis and thrombosis occurring in our patients who have COVID-19. This can lead to ischemia, injury, and then we can end up with cardiomyopathy. We can end up having dysrhythmias and we can end up having a myocardial infarction. In addition to the lungs and the heart, we can also see symptoms in the GI tract. It's very common in children, less common in adults, but we're still able to culture uh, viral load from the GI tract as a result of this infection. So maybe not attacking the GI system as much in adults, although we probably see a higher level of symptoms in patients who already have underlying GI disease. The liver and the kidneys, we see some direct activation. Remember, these are the filters of the body, and we're seeing some direct attacks on the liver and the kidney. In addition, because it's being attacked by the virus, we're going to see some lymphocytic infiltration. So our white blood cells are going down there. They're trying to eat up that virus, but they're getting clogged in the filter too because lymphocytes are fairly large. We can also see some microthrombi. If you remember from the inflammatory process, there's three things that happen. We get vasodilation, capillary permeability, and clotting. And that third piece, the clotting part, is going to lead to some of these microthrombi that are occurring in the liver and the kidney, which further decreases our liver and kidney function. That leads to some cellular de degeneration, and our treatments, our antivirals and steroids, add to more liver dysfunction, because of course they're filtered out by the liver. So that may lead to even more liver dysfunction as well.
Lastly, we could see that there's going to be some changes, and I mentioned this very at the very beginning, about having some neurological symptoms, some cognitive symptoms and psychiatric symptoms. We're not quite sure exactly how this is occurring, but we see it more pronounced in patients who have severe illness. Okay, well, that kind of makes sense. If the patient has a severe illness, that they're going to be on a ventilator, they're going to be in the ICU, they're going to have prolonged mechanical ventilation. In fact, uh, most of these patients who are mechanically ventilated, the average time that they're on a ventilator is 16 and a half days. That's really, really long. So a long time on the ventilator, that means a long time of sedation, neuromuscular blockade, and those things can lead to a post-ICU syndrome where patients have some delirium and they have some mental confusion and difficulty with being able to process process cognitively after they have left the ICU. Now, whether that's due to post-ICU syndrome or whether that's due to some direct damage from the virus, we're not really clear on it yet. But about 50% of our patients who have who have severe illness are going to end up having some kind of neuromuscular disorder as a result. And about 70% will have some delirium, at least while they're in the intensive care unit. There's a very prolonged recovery period that happens as a result of COVID-19 as well. Those patients who have severe illness, 30% of them, 33%, a third, uh, cannot return to work at all. And another third cannot return to their previous level of employment. So a full 66% of patients who've had severe illness are not going to go back to the job that they left before they got sick. So really important that we are implementing early types of interventions with these patients to help to keep them mobilized, some early passive range of motion, even while they're unstable, and then start getting them back into some strength training as soon as they're able to do that so that they're not losing some of that neuromuscular ability and hopefully uh, combating some of that fatigue that they have. For more information about the nursing care of COVID patients, please see our YouTube videos on the nursing care of COVID patients, part one and part two. In closing, COVID-19 attacks all of our body systems, stimulates the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which can lead to multi-organ dysfunction. A thorough assessment can find problems early on and prevent complications. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about how to manage your patients with nursing emergencies by going to thenursingprof.com. Thanks for joining me this week. Until next time, bye now.